Now, we're in our Advent series right now. I'm trying to get this to work on my phone right now so I can operate the slide. I believe that it is On a Quiet Day is the series that we are in. You're asking why we are calling it that, and I am here to tell you. Uh, that title is derived from a speech that Arundhati Roy gave once at an Occupy Movement rally where she goes out of her way to do this kind of scathing analysis of capitalism and all the puppets inside of it and um, names everything that stands as an obstacle to peace, shalom, flourishing, call it what you will, but she still holds on to hope. She refuses to loosen her grasp on hope, and she goes as far as to say, even with all the obstacles named and noted, another world is not only possible, she is on her way. And on a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. That's how the prophets talk, you know. If you read the Hebrew prophets and you listen to their voices and the visions that they cast, that's kind of how they sound. They say yes to humanity, which requires also them saying no to everything that dehumanizes people. They say yes to this vision, which requires saying no to violence. That's what she was doing in that speech. And so we gather on these Sundays inside of this series to pause, lean in together, and listen on these quiet days. Is there another world emerging in our midst? Is there something better than, than what currently is? And for us in this series, we're going to the voice of Isaiah in particular. Isaiah is a prophet who was with the people in a time of trauma, in a time of pain, in a time where everything had been taken away from them. Did anybody see those, the footage, any drone footage today of the areas where the tornadoes hit? Horrifying. Yeah, horrifying. Things just decimated, towns flattened, people lost everything. In Isaiah's time, there were no tornadoes, but there were the Assyrians and the same kind of result. The city was flattened, the people were taken, and they had lost everything. And, and to kind of even put it a little bit more in perspective and punctuate the point, the people in exile, they weren't just, it wasn't a friendly captivity. They were taken away by an army that would be equivalent to modern day what ISIS was, doing horrifying, brutalizing, terroristic activities that um, I'm not even going to repeat right now. So I just want you to feel, though, like when Isaiah is speaking to the people and he's offering up a different vision than the violence that they've come to know, when he says that how it is is not how it always will be, that's the how it is that they were dealing with. Those were the ghosts that they were haunted by. And yet in the midst of this, in the midst of powerful boots from powerful people constantly stepping on their necks, um, Isaiah speaks about a different kind of ruler, about a different kind of day. And he writes this, says this, Nevertheless, this is 700 years, mind you, prior to the birth of Christ. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness, they have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. As warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot has been used in battle. Every garment that's been rolled up in blood, all of it. He's going into the fire. Here's Christmas. 
For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And for tonight's purposes, punctuate that point, that title, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Can you hear all of the longing that lives inside of those words? Regardless if you find yourself to be religiously inclined or you're kind of like here and it feels like a force, I don't really care. Can you hear the longing of a people? inside of those words, thinking about a day when not just this oppressor will be subbed out for a different kind of oppressor, but when all oppression will be stripped away, when we will study war no more because we'll be so immersed in peace and mutuality. Can you imagine offering up that vision in the midst of that trauma? Can you imagine talking about a day that is coming that won't be like the day that they've had. He gets to this point where he's not just talking about a day, he's talking about a different kind of ruler. He's saying that somebody's on their way who will be better than the somebodies who have already come. Somebody's going to take the throne who won't be like the somebodies who are on the throne. Somebody is coming to expose the, the myth of redemptive violence, the, the lunacy of gated communities, the fact that the poor are poor in a land where there are so many who have so much. Somebody is coming in this person, this one who is going to rise to the throne. So pure is this one that he will be called the Prince of Peace, which is, is far better than him calling himself the Prince of Peace. Just to be clear, when you think about the language around this moment right here, this whoever this person is going to be, some people think that he was talking about Cyrus, some people say Hezekiah, most Christians say there was a prophecy about Jesus. But whoever that individual is, this person wasn't walking around in some kind of re-election campaign kissing babies and saying, I, I have a good heart, I am the Prince of Peace. No, no, no. People had an encounter with this person, and that encounter was an experience of peace. There is something about this person being in rule. Prince in this language, in the Hebrew language, it means chief, leader. It, it, prince can kind of sound like some minor figure in the king's government, but that's not what the intention is here. The leader of peace. To live in the domain of the leader of peace is to be committed to the ways that make for peace. And so are you. Maybe that's a good question to ask out of the gates. If Jesus is the person that Isaiah is pointing to, do you have enough peace in your life to show that that is proof? Because I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of different people in the past, and I don't know if you've ever met any other Christians who, um, they don't have a ton of peace, nor are they loudly advocating for peace. And sometimes, actually, I actually remember one particular conversation with a person. It wasn't this particular text, but it was around another one of these prophetic texts. And they were talking about all the different ways that the Hebrew Bible is pointing towards the person of Jesus. And they were talking about all the counterfeit versions out there. And as we we're going into this conversation, the longer I was there and he was laying out all of his points, I said, I hear you talking about the Prince of Peace. Where is your proof of peace? Why is it that if your tree is firmly planted in the soil of the Prince of Peace, why are the fruits making me so anxious right now? Why is there such an absence of empathy? Why is it that the longer I linger in your particular branches, the further I away, 
I feel from, from peace. Why is it? What is this peace that Isaiah is pointing to, and what is it to be like to embody it? What is it to be like? What would it look like to embody that? Isaiah, the word that he uses here for peace is the word that is much bigger than peace. This is not the kind of peace which looks like making sure the kids sit still at the dinner table and the adults don't talk about religion and politics. That's not what shalom is all about. Shalom is, is central to the gospel story. If you want to understand Jesus, you need to understand Shalom. If you want to understand the, the God of the Old Testament, you need to understand Shalom. If you want to understand why you show up at church, you need to understand Shalom. Shalom is about peace. Shalom, though, is bigger than just peace. It is about wholeness, health, living in integration with yourself, right relationships with, with your body, with your person, with your neighbor, with your city. Shalom is, to quote the gospel of Radiohead, everything in its right place. All of the pieces are where they are supposed to be, operating in this way where they're supposed to be. When Jesus says, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus is talking about all of you who get up in the morning and you feel that ache. That something is off, you don't even know how to properly name it. Or who you you put your kids down at night and there's a problem of some sort that might be beyond the reach of articulation. That's the hungering and thirsting for shalom that you feel. It's not all as it's supposed to be. You don't even know how to paint an accurate picture of what it's supposed to be. But we can all walk around day in and day out with that sense of something is off. Like sometimes I feel closer to how it's supposed to be, but right now I feel like a little bit off. I actually was thinking about this as Christian was talking and we were singing these songs and I was thinking about just really, if we're honest, like why do we show up at church? You know, I'm looking over here at this story and there's an angel on, in the sky talking to, um, I mean, that's the Christmas story right there. But we have all these different things, these images that are on these windows up here, all these colorful stories that we don't really experience in our day in, day out lives, at least not like it looks up there, but we still show up and we still sing these songs and we still pay attention to sermons and we still are waiting and hoping and looking and searching for something that's going to set all that is off to a place where suddenly it is right because we are looking for shalom. There is something about being a human being that at its core has left us longing and hungering and thirsting in this very bodily day in, day out way for what is right, for what is good. And Isaiah says to a people who are in incredible pain that that day is coming because there is somebody who will emerge from our midst who is not just a prince in power but is the prince of peace. Who is the prince of peace, of wholeness, shalom. So again, what is shalom? Shalom, as we've kind of already noted, it is not just the absence of conflict. It is the presence of justice. You know, this is what makes it really interesting. Actually, if I can go down a little bit of a rabbit trail, this night might be filled with many rabbit trails, so just please brace yourself, okay? But... I do find it interesting that when you do have a wider grasp on this varsity word of shalom, you can quickly identify how JV, our understanding of peace, is in the world. Sorry, Patty, I'm outside of the lens. I apologize. Many people who are committed to the work of shalom, then, in this world, committed to the work of not just getting rid of conflict, but actually establishing justice, many people who are doing the work of being 
peacemakers, they actually are the first to be identified as those who are struggling to keep the peace. Have you ever noticed that? This is what drove Dr. King crazy. When King was in Birmingham, he was thrown into jail. He wrote from the Birmingham jail, so he said, you know, here's where my frustration lies. It's not the biggest obstacle towards collective liberation, the biggest obstacle from getting from point A to point B and making progress on this movement, it's not the Klansmen. Really isn't the Klansmen. It's the people who are smiling to my face, and in the moment that I walk out of the room, they say they're making too much noise. They're stirring things up a little. They're not keeping the peace. King says this, actually. He said, when I, I think about all of that, the biggest challenge is not the clanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, that is a JV version of peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is shalom, which is the presence of justice. Jesus, Prince of Peace, puts on full display the ways of peace, the work of peace, the call of peace, the life of shalom. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. There's no ambiguity. When you look at his life and you think about the ways and the work and the calling required to actually not just strip away the tensions but put in place some justice, Jesus embodies what that actually looks like. Jesus lives into the work of shalom. He is a continuation of Isaiah's dream. And I, I just want to argue tonight that in no place is this more clearly identified than the opening scene of Jesus' adulthood life. Jesus goes to the River Jordan. Jesus goes into the arms of his cousin John. And there is this moment here where all the longing of all the prophets for that somebody new to step into power and be put on full display how we're going to set things finally to right, it happens right here. You might miss it though, because it's not as obvious as you think it would be. Let me go down rabbit trail number two, this kind of the Roman variety. Um, when you think about how it is that we set out to collectively organize ourselves towards a place of shalom, how we go about the work of setting things right. I mean, how do we do it? I mean, individually, I have enough trouble as is. I go to the therapist, talk to my wife, journal, think deeply about matters that, that matter. But collectively, how do we go about doing that? All the systemic evils, the things that we see are wrong, the things that we see are not as they should be. How do we go? Well, one of the ways that we do that is how we did it last month. We go to the booth and we cast a vote. We decide as a city, for example, um, are we going to try to create a more holistic and wider uh, form of public safety? Are we going to put rent control in its place? And, and probably even most importantly, who are we going to ask and endorse to be our leaders that are going to lead us to a more perfect shalom? Who is going to take us and gain us the inches that we need so that we can get closer to the shalom that we all hunger and thirst for? We go to the ballots. But the Romans, they went to the birds. The Romans, they looked to the skies to decide major political decisions and to decide the emperors that would take control. 
This is known as a practice of augury. It might not be familiar with many of us, but it's the dominant form of how decisions were made at this time. Whether it was talking about infrastructure or inflation or funding or health care or choosing new leaders, the belief was that Jupiter, who was the god of the skies, Jupiter would send messages through the birds that would endorse different decisions. And so the college of augurs, these different elders in Roman society, they would come out and they would study the skies and they would gauge based upon bird height in the sky, the wing movements that they made, the sound of the wings flapping in the wind. All of that would help discern whether or not a decision was to be made this way or that way, whether we give our money to that, take that land over there, advance in this particular field. They didn't go to the ballots, they immediately looked to the birds. And especially this was most pointedly done so when it came to how emperors were chosen. I mean, not just any bird would get that done. You couldn't just have a crow come across your path and all of a sudden you'd be deemed to be the next emperor. Now, the, the College of Augurs, they would go out and they would say, has an eagle landed on you lately? H has an eagle, uh, has Jupiter gone out of his way to send an eagle on you so that you can be an emperor for us? And somehow this, this happened. In fact, Luke starts his story by saying that it was in the days of Caesar Augustus. And that's interesting because... Augustus' given name was Octavius, but when Octavius came into power, Augustus was the name that he took because he wanted everybody to know that it wasn't just like he snuck his way to the top of the totem pole. He had an eagle that landed upon him, and the gods put him into this place, and so you better put some respect on his name. And the Roman historians at this time, they would say that that's actually how it's always worked. Every emperor in Roman society, especially in the first century, they had some kind of story of an eagle crossing their paths. Tiberius would tell you about how he was on an island, and he was staying at a house, and one morning he woke up, and there was an eagle on top of his house, and that island had never had any kind of eagles on it before, but he somehow had one on his house. Um, Claudius would tell you how he woke up one morning and went for his morning stroll with his wife, when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they were talking, and an eagle perched on his left shoulder. Now, that's just not, that's not enough, though, in and of itself, because what secondarily needs to happen in order for this to truly be an endorsement from Jupiter, that you are to be the next emperor of the people and lead us closer to the place of shalom and peace that we are all looking for, is you can't just have an ego land on you. You also need a witness to affirm it, a college of augurs elder to come through and see it. And if one was present, as conveniently for each of those one was, they would look at that ego landing on your shoulder, landing on your house, and they would say, well, would you look at that? In him, Jupiter is well pleased. Uh, the evidence is clear. We have no ambiguity left anymore. An eagle has landed in him. Jupiter has made his choice. Who are we to go against Jupiter and Jupiter's desires? The eagle is here. And because it's an eagle that came for the endorsement, the task of the emperor is to embody the bird that endorsed it. You are to be ferocious and fierce. You are to be warlike, strong. You are to be the king of the skies, like the bird that landed on your shoulder, on your house, on your hut. In you, Jupiter is well pleased. Now, 
I tell you all this, and I hope you're not bored out of your mind because it's completely fascinating to me. But when Luke sets out to write his gospel, when Luke sits down with pen in hand, he is writing to a people who are immersed in Roman culture. He is writing to a crowd that is deeply Hellenistic, who is so familiar with the stories of Jupiter, the system of augury, the way that we look to the skies to decide who's going to lead us on the land. And with that in mind, Luke introduces the people to the true leader of the free world with these words right here. He says this, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased, don't miss this, because Roman readers, their radar would be flashing like crazy right now. Luke paints a picture of this scene, and in this scene there is a voice, and in this scene there is a vision. The voice comes from some sort of a sky god, and the vision looks like a bird. And the only appropriate way you could discern what is happening in the text before you is that this Jesus who came from the sticks went down into the water as a cousin, but somehow emerged back up as a king. Or at least as somebody. And this is where it would have gotten a little bit confusing. This is where it would have been a little bit tricky because a dove and an eagle are not one of the same. Um, the eagle is the warlike. Doves were known for weakness. Doves were not powerful like eagles. Doves were pathetic. In fact, one Roman uh, historian at this time said, courageous eagles do not beget unwarlike doves. Now, they're like the opposite sides of the spectrum. Eagles were the voice of triumph. Eagles were the voice of domination. Eagles were the face that you would wear when you were heading into battle because eagles were the kings of the skies. But the doves were, uh, what were they? I mean, scripturally, doves are known as like the symbols for the poor and the empty. Eagles were known for like symbols as the, for the elite and the top dogs. Why would anybody want to be endorsed by a dove, let alone live a life that embodies one? Why would anyone want to take on the call of a dove? Because doves, they're not as effective as eagles. Doves in a dog-eat-dog -dog world, they can't get the job done like an eagle can get done. They can't set things right. Doves are the ones who are off in the field singing kumbaya, dreaming about some utopian planet that is disconnected from reality, and they're not actually helpful. They're just making noise, and eagles are the ones, though it may be uncomfortable, they will take things over and set it right. You hit an eagle, they're going to hit you back. You make an eagle upset, they're going to make you wish that you didn't. But a dove, what will a dove actually do? What can a dove actually do? Because doves, they don't fight. Efficacy requires an eagle. Progress requires an eagle. Progress towards shalom requires an eagle. So says the peace of Rome, which for all those who were on the other side of Rome, wasn't very peaceful at all. Doves don't play that game. Doves die. Eagles win. 
But if you study the life of Jesus, you quickly come to find that maybe that's the point. That the profound part of Jesus' life is not that somehow he lost in this game and then ultimately he came back to win it, but that he opted out of the game entirely. That he refused to participate in a system, in a game, and get really good at something that was never good for anyone. That maybe looked like he was moving us closer to Shalom, but it was always about control. It was always about manipulation. It was a victory that required victims. It was a peace that required violence. That is not the path of shalom. That is not the path of the dove. Jesus was defiant like a dove. Jesus refused the path of the evil. Ego. Jesus made nonviolence militant, truth confrontational, in righteousness a threat to established authority. It cost him everything, but Jesus insisted on shalom, and he worked for it like a dove. This is what doves do. I'm going this long about way right now because I want us to see how Shalom is not an attribute. It's not like this tag on thing that we should consider as Christians. To be a Christian, I, I consider myself a recipient of the Christian tradition and I'm aspiring to be a practitioner in it as well. In that aspiration, Shalom is central. I forfeit my rights to live as an ego because I followed the son of love who had a dove descend upon him and said, this is the way that you are to walk. And it often looks not like it's working. It often looks like you're losing. It's a willingness to be wounded but to keep on walking all the way. I mean, some doves have been dragged so far to the edge of their limits, all the way to the point of the death, and that even at that point where they've been beaten, bloodied, bruised, where they've been cursed and mistreated and misunderstood, they still in their final breaths have uttered out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That is the way of the dove. And the eagles have no idea what to do with that. But it's the way that we take. And so in this Christmas season, as we think about the the foolishness and the lunacy of following the child who emerged in the middle of an empire on the straw of a cradle in a farm, I want you to think, are you committed to the bird that looks like a dove, or do you still believe in the path of the ego? Manifest in 10,000 different ways. What does it look like for you? Let me close with this. Um, in 1966, Dr. King was in Chicago, and he had this experience where he realized it is far worse actually here in Chicago in my encounters with the different local authorities than it was even in the South. At least they were honest about the racism in the South. It's a lot more buried in the North, and we've seen that ourselves in Minneapolis. But six hours from here, when King moved to Chicago, he ran away, he ran into, hi Graham, immediately a fight with the mayor of the city, Mayor Daly, a, who is historically known as a crooked and corrupt mayor. In this encounter, in this clash with that mayor, they had this, they were told, King and his people were told, listen, you guys can protest, make your point, do what doves do, we'll allow it. But then when they actually put that promise into practice, they quickly found out it was forbidden. And so they set up this meeting, and they have this meeting where they're sitting down, and they go back and forth, and they're kind of expressing their grievances. And the people who were inside of this meeting say that King was silent the whole time. There was a lot of emotions that were rising up, but the whole entire time, King sat in his chair, and he, he didn't say a word. He was silent like a lamb, still like a dove. But then at the end, in the presence of eagles, 
He said this, I know you are tired of our demonstrations, but let me just say that if you are tired of demonstrations, please hear me, I am tired of demonstrating. I'm tired of the threat of death. I want to live. I don't want to be a martyr. I don't want to be a dove. And there are moments when I doubt if I'm going to make it through. I understand, Mayor Daly, that you are tired, but we are tired of getting hit. We are tired of being beaten. We are tired of going to jail. But the important thing is not how tired we are, but to get rid of the conditions that have led us to march. Now, gentlemen, you guys know the case. We don't have much power. We don't have much money. We don't have much education. We don't have political party power. And the people in the room at this point, they say that he walked over close to Daly and he spoke with a quiet voice and he said, Mr. Daly, all we have is our bodies and you are asking us to give up the one thing that we have when you say, don't march. On those words, the whole meeting shifted and a corrupt mayor's heart was softened and a new deal was reached. All because in the midst of pain, pressure, and societal abuse, King refused to forfeit the calling of a dove and live like an eagle instead. May the same be said about us as well. Maggie, will you lead us? This is the part where we move towards communion. And um, I just can't help but think about when Jesus came to the end of his life, as someone who identified as a dove, all he had left to give us was his body. And so when he came to the end, he didn't have power and he didn't have, uh, I mean, he had following, but his following were people like him. People who also were feeling that oppression from Rome and feeling like they didn't have very much. We don't have much, we can't, we can't give anything. And so the night before Jesus died, he was having a traditional religious meal with his friends and he used these specific words. As he took the bread, he broke it and he told them, take and eat, this is my body. This is what I have and what I have I give you. And I just can't but think what, no eagle would do that. No eagle would give up what they have to people who have nothing. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is, this is my blood. It's been poured out for you. This is the blood of the new covenant. And I don't know if the friends understood in that moment what the new covenant was going to look like. But it was broader. It was more expansive. It was more inclusive than any of the religious leaders that those days were talking about. It was everyone. It included the people with power. And he was speaking to people who had none. But he invited them into it. He said, you take this, you eat, you drink. When you do it, remember. Remember that you are people without power, but you are people who have bodies, and I want you to take mine. So we do that. This evening, if you have your prepackaged cup, and James is coming around if you missed one, you can take that and peel back the top layer for the wafer and hear these words from Christ the dove to you. This is the body of Christ and it's broken for you. And in the same way you can take the cup and hear these words, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. 
live as people of peace. Would you stand with me and together we'll say the prayer that Jesus taught his people to say, saying, Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Okay, before we close, I have an announcement that I need to give real quick. Last night, some of our friends in Young Life, a young family, they lost their house. It, it burned down in a fire. And um, these kids, they were stripped of everything. And so it's one thing to talk about being doves in a land of eagle in abstract ways, but to actually put it into practice, that opportunity invitation is before us right now. And here's what the needs are. You have um, Quinny. Who need, can you, if you have your phone, maybe the best way to do this, if you want to participate this and be an answer to an incredible problem that is present, take a phone, photo of that screen, and then Debbie's going to have her house open tomorrow for you to drop things off. Um, that'd be the best way to do so. It's an urgent need. And so if we can be a church that steps up in that space, I would be grateful. And I know that we can because you guys have a history of doing so. Um, so with that... I apologize, you guys, if my ADHD has me all over the place right now. Aunt Susie, do I feel a little scrambled tonight? A little bit? Yeah, it is what it is. But can we together close our eyes and just hold out our hands? Before I give the benediction, just feel the ache. I said at the beginning that we're here on these Sundays to lean in together and listen for the quiet space where the new world is emerging in the midst of this old one. the absence of it in your relationships in your city in what you want to see happen in what is yet to actually happen and in the midst of that ache and the absence can you hear the voice of love the voice of the dove voice of Emmanuel who is with you in the ache and will lead you towards abundance. Friends, no matter who you are or what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, where you've gone or the places that you've stayed, there will always be a seat here for you at the table because you are a beloved child of God and beloved you belong. Go and be peace. See you next Sunday.